You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Rick Sander, who is a professor of law at UCLA, an economist, and you're the author of a bunch of books, including this most recent book, co-authored, Moving Towards Integration, The Past and Future of Fair Housing, and also Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students It's Intended to Help and Why Universities Won't Admit It. So, Rick, you've been involved in researching housing and segregation for, for decades. In fact, you were, I think you were an activist in Chicago back in the day. And, you know, this book really does dig deep into the longstanding roots of residential segregation in the United States and, and talks about its evolution over pretty much most of the 20th century. And, and I think for a lot of people, there's confusion about the origins of segregation. On the one hand, a lot of people point to zoning and restrictive covenants and laws. And then, you know, others will point to kind of the Thomas Schelling sort of self-segregation models where just a tiny bit of preference differences can lead to these aggregate outcomes where you see massive segregation. In your book, you kind of discuss both of these theories. What exactly is it and why is it that we've had so much persistent segregation in residential housing for so long, even though the law has waxed and waned? Well, can I give you like a three or four minute answer? Was that yeah, too long? Of course. We got, we, um, our, my listeners have a long attention span. <laughs> okay. It is complex. And there are really two phases to the question. One is how we got segregation. And then why in the last 50 years of open housing laws, it hasn't declined more. So the first issue is really a debate between folks who argue that segregation is sort of a vast government conspiracy and those who argue that it was largely market forces. I'm sort of in between on that one, but I think the government conspiracy narrative has gotten a lot of purchase in the last few years. There was a book written by Richard Rothstein, one of whose appointments is at Berkeley, called The Color of Law. And the cover of his book shows this color-coded map of a major American city. And the book... This this is the FHA? Yeah. From the FHA uh, laws in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, the, The maps were actually created by the Homeowners Mortgage Corporation. The book essentially claims that these were color-coded race maps, and this is where the government decided that people were going to live by race. And none of that's true. The maps are actually maps of foreclosure rates. And the, the one or two scholars who have actually tried to understand where the lines were drawn found that race was a fairly inconsequential factor. It, it was mostly income levels, age of housing, foreclosure rates. It was intended to sort of be a guide for banks who were the government was trying to get back into the mortgage market in the 1930s after the Great Depression. So that's just an example of how this debate tends to get skewed and oversimplified. In the early 20th century, Blacks were about as segregated as recent European immigrants. On a scale of zero to one, where one is apartheid, segregation levels were generally between 0.6 and 0.7 for both Blacks and, say, Italian-Americans and Polish-Americans and so on. Segregation really happened in the 1920s for Blacks, and it was the juxtaposition of an increased Black migration to the North, so Black numbers were increasing rapidly in the North, 
and an awareness by Northerners that this large influx was creating racial conflict in a number of cities, and it was creating a fear of invasion from black neighborhoods into adjacent white neighborhoods. And that led to a lot of private organizing aimed at trying to stop transitions from white to black. So realtor codes were developed that discouraged realtors, penalized realtors if they showed blacks homes in white neighborhoods. Banks started developing practices of not facilitating black entry into white neighborhoods. And there were riots in several cities that, that were often sparked by residential transition in particular neighborhoods. So the government was not completely passive in these areas, but it was not particularly active. In 1918, after a few cities tried enacting racial zoning, the U.S. Supreme Court struck it down. And the federal government really had no involvement in housing markets until the New Deal. But by 1930, segregation levels were established. And this index of dissimilarity was around 0.9, almost everywhere in the United States, between blacks and whites. So you had this established system of segregation. And when the government got involved with things like FHA insurance, it tended to want to accommodate existing market practices as opposed to say, we want you banks to accept this idea of mortgage insurance and accept the idea of 30-year mortgages, but you also have to stop this discrimination stuff. Their attitude, FDR's attitude, I'm sure, was no, the priority is try to get the economy going. And if we have to accommodate existing discriminatory practices, we will. So it's that kind of nuance, that kind of interaction. No one really has clean hands in the story. In 1948, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that restrictive covenants were unconstitutional. That was one of the pivotal early decisions on fair housing, really in civil rights generally. And it was a fairly aggressive decision. It really showed a court that was prepared to go a long way on, on civil rights issues and really cut against the 19th century precedents like Pussy against Ferguson. And of course, eight years later, it decided Brown versus Board of Education. So Shelley really dealt a fatal blow to restrictive covenants that had been a key private mechanism for keeping Black demand limited to certain areas of cities. And following Shelley, there was this immediate large-scale movement of middle-class Blacks into adjacent white areas. And the whole process of racial transition really got going. But it didn't lead to desegregation because private discrimination was still legal from 1948 to 1968. So you started this whole process of large sections of almost all cities having white to black transitions in central city areas, almost always areas that were adjacent to the old black ghettos. And segregation levels remained very high, but this was a period when blacks actually did pretty well in terms of increasing home ownership a lot, getting better access to job markets, and so on. So then in 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act. And what's really fascinating is that two patterns start in different parts of America. There are about a dozen cities where between 1970 and the early 1990s, you had really sharp drops in segregation levels. So the index of the similarity went back down to, say, 0.6, 0.7, similar to the beginning of the 20th century. And you had a number of other cities where there was barely any change at all. So there are two things about this that are really important. One is that in every city where segregation fell, there was a dramatic improvement in black outcomes. And the evidence is pretty strongly in favor of showing that that was caused by the desegregation rather than the cause of it. 
I mean, there's a feedback loop, of course, but generally the fall in, in segregation fell before the improvements in black outcomes happened. And those improvements are staggering. The black-white gap in mortality rates, for example, is one-third as large in the cities where segregation fell as in the cities where it didn't. The gap in young male adult unemployment is about one-sixth as large in the cities that have had significant desegregation. So this is an enormously consequential thing. And therefore, it's really important to understand why did it happen in some places and not others. And the most interesting part of that story is that variations in government policy didn't seem to have anything to do with it. The Fair Housing Act was reasonably enforced everywhere. Discrimination levels fell sharply. But in the cities that desegregated, you had a few demographic factors that really fostered desegregation. Most importantly, you had lots of young college-educated Blacks moving into those metro areas in the 70s and 80s. And they overwhelmingly moved to districts that had previously been all white. So for the first time, you had a group of cities where you had a, a very mobile, sort of young, Black, prosperous group. And when those moves happened, then other Blacks started moving into those neighborhoods. And whites and Hispanics started moving into the Black neighborhoods. And you just kind of got this self-reinforcing process of uh, desegregation. Now, segregation levels didn't disappear. There's still notable black and white areas in, the, in these communities. But blacks and, and all of those desegregated communities are exposed mostly to non-blacks in their own neighborhoods, and usually predominantly non-blacks. How do you disentangle racial segregation from income segregation? One of the things that I think is defining feature of American cities, as opposed to, say, some European cities, is that you have these income gradients. One of my favorite housing innovations it was in Paris, where Baron Haussmann had the, the large flats on the lower floors and the smaller flats on the upper floors. And so you had stacked income gradient, vertical income gradient, as opposed to horizontal. But in the U.S., we tend to have wealthy people congregating and less wealthy people congregating. And then that results in radically different public goods provision, even within municipal boundaries, certainly across municipal boundaries. So how much of the racial segregation that we're measuring is really income segregation? And how do we disentangle that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think our book does the first really good job of disentangling it. Because we can say that it's essentially between, depending on the metropolitan area, the income part is about between a quarter and a third of the total segregation phenomenon, which is a much lower number than we, we generally assume. Most writers who have proposed ways to reduce segregation focus exclusively on the economic aspects. Now, I mentioned this book, The Color of Law. Virtually all of the remedies that author suggests are about things like getting rid of exclusionary zoning and building more affordable housing in suburbs and, and stuff like that. But that's unlikely to have much impact. And in fact, areas like New Jersey, where it's been tried, it, it hasn't had much impact. We did an experiment while we were writing the book where we took micro-level census data down to the block level, and we tagged every household with six demographic characteristics, including their income, whether they were a homeowner, the age of the householder, the size of the household, and so on. And we tagged their housing unit with those same characteristics. And then we just asked a computer to randomly reassign everyone to a new housing unit in the metropolitan area 
that had the same characteristics that they have. So it's kind of like if you forced everyone to be completely mobile, but you didn't change any of their basic characteristics. And the key innovation is that it was race blind. The assignment was completely race blind. We were just using their other demographic characteristics. And when everyone goes, settles back into a new bin, you can then measure how segregated that is. So in Chicago, the segregation level changes from 0.8 to point, I think 0.23. In other words, it essentially goes away. I mean, it's impossible if you had this random assignment actually to get below about 0.05 because just, just through random chance, you're not going to get a perfectly even distribution. So it's an extraordinary drop. And that means that we can get down to segregation levels anywhere in America in the sort of 0.2 to 0.3 range without changing anybody's income. Now, we didn't have data on wealth, and wealth is an important factor. It's an important limiting factor for Blacks in the particular gaining single-family homes. But we did have whether they were already an existing owner or renter. So what the exercise illustrates is that although Blacks have lower incomes than whites, the overlap in their distributions is really large. And the overlap in the distribution of economic classes within small geographic areas is also larger than we usually assume. I live on a block that has some really nice homes, but two doors down from me is a, is a four flat. Uh, I think working class uh, families living there. So I'm all for measures to increase economic integration. I, I think economic segregation is a problem, but it's wrong to think that we're going to solve racial segregation by doing that stuff. And we tend to put a lot of political capital, as we'll get to when we talk about affirmative action, we tend to put large amounts of political capital into strategies without thinking through in advance, is this actually going to solve the problem we're trying to solve? So wait, what's the actual micro-mechanism, though? Because, look, if you don't have restrictive covenants and you don't have any zoning that would get in the way, then what's the mechanism? Would a seller of a home refuse to accept a larger offer if it was from someone of a different race? What's the actual mechanism that keeps the, the segregation going? Is it frictions in the sales process or is it preferences on the part of the home buyers? So in the cities that are still very segregated, which is most of them, discrimination seems to be a trivial factor. You know, the federal government does systematic housing audits every 10 years, sends out thousands of pairs of testers to find out what is the behavior of sellers. And the discrimination rates we measure now are very low. Depending on how you measure it, you can argue that it's somewhere between 1% or 2% and 10%. So that's not enough to, to be a meaningful factor. It may, may be a factor in discouraging some African-Americans from seeking housing in white areas, but it's not an actual objective barrier. There are two things that I think are really important. So the most important are the mental maps that people have in racially segregated areas. There's a great book co-authored by Maria Creason, a University of Illinois sociologist, who interviewed lots of people and talked to them about their housing search process and found that folks tend to, they tend not to take all the available addresses in their price range in the metropolitan area and put them in a bin and randomly draw them out. They tend to talk to their friends and coworkers and family members and case out neighborhoods that they have some familiarity with. And most moves are relatively short. You know, if someone moves within the same metro area, they're usually moving less than three miles away from where they live now. So all those things tend to perpetuate segregation because people's information networks are very similar. There was an experiment in, in Seattle co-run by Roz Chetty and a few other great social scientists. Stephanie DeLuca and Johns Hopkins was also involved. And they took folks who 
we're receiving Section 8 vouchers, where the government basically provides low-income families with part of the rent so that they're more mobile. And the control group was given a voucher and said, find a, a housing unit. The experimental group was given counseling, where they were sort of introduced to a range of housing options, and they were given help if they wanted to move a longer move than they would usually make. They were given some help with moving expenses and introduced to the local schools and things like that. So they found that the control group moved into middle-class neighborhoods at a rate of 14%. The experimental group moved in at a rate of 54%. So the amount of the voucher was the same in both groups. It wasn't because one group could afford it and the other group couldn't. They could afford exactly the same housing. But one group had their, their mental maps enhanced by this counseling program. And the counseling was very cheap. So we know real solutions that could actually radically change moving behavior. The other factor that, that's very important is that in these cities, I'll use Chicago as sort of my paradigmatic example. After the 70s, when fair housing came in, if you didn't desegregate, if you didn't have all this movement of Blacks into sort of the outlying white areas, what you did have is movement of Blacks into adjacent white areas. You had further transition of white neighborhoods to Black neighborhoods. Because a lot of Blacks thought, well, I'd like integration, but I don't want to move where there are no Blacks. I want to move into this neighborhood that's three miles away that already has a 10% Black population. And if everyone is doing that, then the neighborhood will resegregate. Black demand will exceed white demand. And cumulatively, over 20 years from 70 to 90, you had so many neighborhoods experience this that at the end of that time, the Black market had a surplus and Black housing prices were depressed relative to white prices. So it's obvious to everyone now that housing prices tend to be lower in Black neighborhoods. But that wasn't the case before the Fair Housing Act. And before Shelley, it was actually opposite. Black neighborhoods had a, like a 30 or 40 or 50% price premium. But because there's now this inverted dual housing market, it's very expensive for Blacks to, to buy housing in, in white neighborhoods. It's hard for them to sell and get enough equity for their existing house to, to move to a typical white suburb. You mentioned that back in the early 20th century, the segregation of ethnic white immigrants was actually as strong or maybe even stronger than for African-Americans. And yet those kind of neighborhoods dissolved. I'm from Philadelphia and the Italian market is, there's no Italian, it's not Italian anymore, right? And, and all these uh, Chinatown, right? Little Italy, these things have disappeared and have blended in and they actually have to pass legislation or have these policies to try to preserve the ethnic flavor of those neighborhoods. My family, when they moved to Philadelphia, they were the real estate agents pointed them into the Catholic neighborhood. So all of my neighbors, we all went to the same church. And I think this was, the realtors probably did this. And, and I'm not sure that the people who lived there were particularly unhappy about that. Why is it that, that those enclaves disappeared without counseling? They didn't have any interventions of the kind that you described. So what is it about the mental maps? Is it the persisting belief in, in racial hostility that drives the awareness of the housing market? So those Italian-American neighborhoods, or more recently, Korean-American neighborhoods in, in Los Angeles, you had indices of dissimilarity that were, say, 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.7. What that means is that there are a significant number of non-Italians in every Italian neighborhood. There are heavily Italian neighborhoods, but there aren't that many that are 90% Italian. So you have a more permeable situation that those European ethnic levels of segregation are comparable to what we see in the relatively integrated 
black and white cities today. San Diego would be an example, or Las Vegas, or Seattle. These are places where there are very few neighborhoods that are really defined by race. Things were all more permeable for those European groups. You also never got into this psychology of racial tipping because if Italians did move into another neighborhood, that was you know, largely invisible to the existing residents, right? So no, no salience. Yeah, right. If you lived in a neighborhood and gradually your neighborhood became 30% Italian, you know, you might notice, but you wouldn't really think about it. And you wouldn't be worried that, that there was some kind of process going on. Whereas the white to black transition process that really got going after Shelley against Kramer was, first of all, you were starting from very high levels of segregation, like 0.9. So neighborhoods really were completely defined by race. And secondly, everyone was aware of racial transition when it was happening. So you had this whole psychology of transitioning that was affecting both black decisions and white decisions. I think that really explains it. And that's why in these, if you can get the segregation level for blacks down to about 0.6, then everything seems fine. It, it, you know, it, you start getting gradual assimilation as you did for European ethics. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk about the uh, impact of segregation and uh, elimination of segregation, because you argue that the continued segregation also leads to continued economic stratification. So what exactly is the mechanism? Why is it that if you take someone from a segregated neighborhood and bring them to a more integrated neighborhood, this affects their, their career and life outcomes? Is it because of, again, access to different public goods, right? I mean, does it mean that you get kind of better schools or what exactly is this kind of neighborhood effect and how does it play out over a lifetime? Well, the true answer is no one really knows. There's now about a dozen studies that have clearly shown that when housing segregation levels fall, all sorts of other good things happen. And a lot of that literature, I think, very convincingly shows a, a causation. But they do, they show the causation not by actually showing what happens to an individual black when they live in a more integrated area, but by showing that, you know, using things like instrumental variables to try to isolate what's causing what. So it's pretty clear that the effect exists, but we haven't done enough ethnographic or case study research in the low segregation cities to really understand what's happening. That said, I'll speculate a little bit. There's a really interesting study by um, a couple of Berkeley colleagues of yours, Jesse Rothstein and uh, David Card. Card recently won the Nobel Prize, where they got very good data from the College Board on test scores, and they looked at patterns in black-white differences across the country. And they found that being in an integrated school helps lower the test score gap, but being in an integrated neighborhood helps a lot. It has a pretty dramatic effect on the test score gap. So think about why would the neighborhood effects be stronger than the school effects? And I think it has a lot to do with peer groups and social interaction and values. It has something to do with the resources that are in the school, but I think it has even more to do with kind of how you relate to other people when you live in the same neighborhood. My daughter goes to, uh, is a ninth grader in LUSD in the Los Angeles school system. She goes to a very urban school, not far from our home. It's majority non-white. And there are some kids who are what we call out of district. In other words, they live many miles away and they come to the school. But probably two-thirds of the kids live in the neighborhood. All of my daughter's friends are from the neighborhood. They just influence each other in many ways. The impact of her friends on her development, I think, has been a lot bigger than the impact of her teachers. But when you say it eliminates the gap, it eliminates the gap in one direction. So in other words, there's a positive impact 
why does it move in that direction? I've looked at these studies involving call center employees. And when you mix high productivity and low productivity call center employees, it tends to increase the, the average productivity. But the mystery is like, why doesn't it go average everything out? Why is there a positive impact as opposed to a negative impact? Yeah. And thank God it works that way, right? <laughs> I mean, the whole argument for desegregation would fall apart if it was essentially a zero-sum process. But it seems to be a positive-sum process, as you say. I, I'm not sure why that is. I, I, I would guess that there, again, there's some sort of tipping point. In other words, the school and the neighborhood have to have a certain critical concentration of higher achievers and people interested in ideas and people, you know, kids who read and, and stuff like that. Would it matter if the process is organic? There's a lot of evidence that the people who choose to, say, immigrate are different in many ways from the people who choose to stay behind. Could it just be a selection effect where the folks who decide that they want to voluntarily move into a different neighborhood are in many ways already different in some way? No, there are self-selection effects and, and those help. For example, non-Native Africans, African immigrants in the United States tend to seek out areas that have higher integration and they also have higher outcomes. And I think there's a lot of self-selection going on in that process. But there was a, this big federal study in the 90s called Moving to Opportunity that had an experimental design. It didn't have a very good racial integration component. So the experimental group wasn't in very different neighborhoods in the control group. But it was different enough that even in that experiment, they found that six-year-olds 20 years later had dramatically better job and market outcomes. So they weren't self-selecting. They were somehow being positively affected. And the big issue that I think you're sort of getting at is how much of it is the better resources in the integrated neighborhoods and how much is the culture. I tend to think that it's more culture than resources, but I think they're both important. Right. So I think at the end of the book, you seem very optimistic. You see segregation sort of on the decline. What are the remaining barriers to this continued trend towards greater integration? Well, the remaining barriers are large, and I vary between optimism and pessimism. If current trends continue, racial segregation will still be a, a pretty significant problem in 2100, which would be horrible. But the reason for optimism is that we're at a moment where if we could just recognize, <laughs> if everyone could just read this book and follow the instructions, <laughs> then we could really fix this problem because we have great demographic trends right now. We have a lot of whites who want to move back into dense urban neighborhoods. We have this increasingly multiracial society and multiracial neighborhoods are much easier to stably integrate than biracial neighborhoods. We apparently have a lot of surpluses in state budgets. So we have the funding to do these really very inexpensive things like mobility counseling that could foster integration. So this is a very solvable problem. But our political discourse really isn't talking about it. We've had massive conversation nationally about racial injustice in the last two years, but a lot of the leading voices in the black community aren't talking about desegregation at all. It's all about sort of representation in the media and you know, symbolic things, knocking down statutes, instituting ethnic studies courses. We're putting a lot of energy into this and things that I think are going to have no long-term impact and ignoring the one thing that could have a really dramatic impact. Well, well, certainly there's a lot of activity in the world of, of education, right? In particular, representation in student bodies. And in your other book, Mismatch, you talk about that. One question that would immediately come to mind is if 
integration is beneficial for all parties involved, then why wouldn't it also be beneficial to all parties involved at the higher education level? Why wouldn't experimenting by bringing people in to the educational environment that wouldn't otherwise be there, why wouldn't this then have sort of a positive impact on their performance? And I think this is really the, the argument behind affirmative action is really educational opportunity is a scarce resource and we need to make sure that the folks who previously didn't have access to it would get access to it. And then their proximity and presence alongside the folks who traditionally would be there would help them to advance their careers and opportunity. And in mismatch, you, you argue that, that that actually doesn't work. Why would it work in kind of the residential setting and not work in the educational setting? Yeah, well, I think it does work in a lot of educational settings. The question is how heterogeneous is the student body to begin with in terms of academic preparation and ability? To go back to my daughter's high school, you basically have the full spectrum of academic ability represented at that high school. And so the African-American kids who are at that school may have lower average performance, but there are lots of other kids in their classes who are at the same level they are. And the instruction in the class is going to pay attention to them and make sure that they're, or at least in many cases, try to make sure that they're on track. But if you compare that, say, with a law school, law schools are extremely hierarchical by design. They compete to get the very strongest student body that they can. And a typical law school like mine, all the students' credentials, setting aside affirmative action, are within a pretty tight band of each other. So when preferences are used, and given the relatively small number of blacks who are getting high test scores and high grades in college, preferences one needs to bring about, say, 10% representation in a law school is going to require admitting students who are uh, two standard deviations below the, the, the middle of the class. They're going to be clustered, sometimes three standard deviations. So you're going to have this bimodal distribution of students. You've got this big group of students who, say, have LSAT scores of 165, and then this small group of students who have LSAT scores of 155. And those students will tend to be left behind. It wasn't all obvious, I think, a priori when we started these experiments, what would happen. But even by the time I became a law professor 30 years ago, it was becoming pretty obvious. And essentially what I did in my first article on mismatch is try to see, could we really get empirical evidence to see how serious this problem was? And it appears now, having worked on that research for about 15 years, that it's, it's even a larger problem than I thought when I started writing about it. Mismatch by itself seems to explain about two thirds of the academic performance gap in law schools between blacks and whites. Right. So let's, let's maybe articulate this mismatch story. It seems to basically be saying is that if we're trying to predict long-term performance of graduating students, obviously things like GPA and standardized test scores are predictive, but your relative ranking within the educational institution is also super predictive, meaning that if you have two students of equal ability and you put one into a academic institution where they're going to be relatively high ranking, they're going to outperform that same person who goes to an institution where they're going to be lower ranking. So as a parent, should you encourage your kids to be in the, in the top half of the class, right? No matter where they go, not everybody can be in the top half of the class. You need to have some people in the bottom half of the class. Well, you know, again, I think there's a limit to what we know. And in this case, the limit of what we know is, is driven by politics. 
when I started working on this around 2003, there were some data difficulties in data access. And there were, you know, one had to work a long time to coax information out of bureaucracies. But eventually one could get pretty good data. After I and other scholars started writing about affirmative action backfiring, basically all the data shut down. Really good databases that you would need to try to see what's the optimal strategy. How far below the median can you go before these mismatch problems set in? That research hasn't been done because the data has been kept under lock and key. I mean, there are, there are fabulous databases that we could figure out in a month answers to a whole bunch of questions like this. And bureaucrats who control it will not let it out. So that said, think about this in the science context. You know, suppose you want to be, become a chemist and you have offers, you're pretty good, you're passionate about science, you've done pretty well, but you haven't had AP chemistry and your LSAT scores are maybe in the high 600s. And you have an offer from Yale and University of North Carolina and a local community college. Where should you go? Well, if you go to Yale, you're probably going to be struggling. You're probably, your preparation is going to put you in the bottom 10% of your cohort. Your teacher is probably going to teach at a level a little bit somewhat above your preparation level. We'll assume things, we'll assume you know things that you haven't really studied before. If all that nonetheless sort of clicks with you, and if you find you make friends with somebody who helps tutor you, or you're just exceptionally energetic, you, you may still do well. And, and this may all just sort of challenge you to excel. But the average student in that environment is going to just find themselves struggling and they're going to get a C and they're almost certainly going to drop out of chemistry and do English or communications. So on the other side, if you went to the community college, you know, you're not going to have the same talent level in your instructors. You're not going to be challenged enough. You're probably also going to underperform. So getting that sweet spot where you're close to the middle, maybe a little bit below the middle, maybe the ideal is being a little bit above the middle. We don't really know that, but being close to the middle seems to be very crucial on average. Right. I mean, we see this in other contexts as well, right? So in, in athletics, if you are way better than your competitors, you're not going to perform at the optimal rate. And if you're kind of way below your competitors, then you're going to more or less drop out of the race. And so if you're trying to maximize your performance, you want to compete against the folks that sort of have the same athletic abilities. I mean, is, is it, it's a similar argument, right? Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book called Outliers, I don't know, around 2010. His first chapter is about Canadian hockey players. And he finds uh, that a very high proportion of professional hockey players in Canada have birthdays in January, February, or March. And he looks into this and finds that the reason is that the hockey clubs that start when kids are like six or seven are organized by calendar year. So the kids who were born in January, February, or March are just on average a little bit bigger than the kids born in October, November, and December. And so the kids late in the year just kind of feel outcompeted and drop out. And the ones who go on and become good hockey players are just that group that had that little edge. In the same book, he talked about affirmative action and sort of glossed over this mismatch issue. And I reached out to him. We started talking and he said, oh, I see. Yeah, that argument applies there too. So he later wrote, wrote a book called David and Goliath where he went into mismatch a lot. There's all sorts of other examples of this. I mean, I remember when I was growing up as a, as a kid, my, my birthday was in October. So I was among the youngest people in my class. 
but I was way ahead academically. And so my, my mom was trying to get me to skip a grade and the, the faculty in the elementary school were like, that's probably not a good idea. It's better for him to be at the top of his class academically than to be the youngest and, and smallest person, even if he was kind of academically equal. And presumably that had little to do with academic accomplishment and more to do maybe with your rank in the pecking order, so to speak. You don't want to be the excluded from the, from the social world because of your age or size or something like that. And then also the public goods people will always say that it's best to have the worst house on the best block. But I think that in many ways kind of ignores the psychological consequences of that. Is having the best house on a, on a worst block may mean that you don't have access to the same level of public goods, but it may have sort of a psychological impact. Has that, I feel like there's an element of the psychology, there's a psychological impact or feedback in terms of how people view themselves when they're comparing them to the others in their comparison group. Well, I think that's a really important part of the story. There's a phenomenon we call social mismatch. So you, you might say, well, even given this academic mismatch, this is a price that we're willing to pay because we want to create these integrated campuses. And I think that's wrong for a couple other reasons. But the key problem is that it, that ignores social mismatch. Peter Arcidiacono, who was the expert witness in the, for the plaintiffs in the Harvard and UNC cases that are before the Supreme Court, he led a team at Duke that did a really interesting study about 15 years ago where they tracked the social interactions of Duke students from the time they started until they, when they graduated. And he documented that in the first semester of freshman year, people had very racially heterogeneous friendship groups. It was like, you know, the dream of diversity was being achieved. But sophomore, junior, senior year, friendship groups became more and more stratified by academic achievement. So that you tended to hang out with kids who were sort of doing as well as you were. So the A students were hanging out with the A students and the B minus students were hanging out with the B minus students. And guess what? Because very large racial preferences were used, even though race independent of preparation had no predictive effect on academic outcomes, the academic preparation gaps were so large that the friendship networks became segregated by senior year more segregated than these students had on average experience in the high schools that they came from. So you, you sort of retrogressed <laughs> the, the progress of diversity during college. So that's obviously crazy. And then you've got this other effect you're referring to, which is that the black students who find themselves in these segregated groups think, well, why are all my black friends struggling here academically? It must be because the environment is racist. So that has been a tremendous fuel, I think, for what we're seeing intellectually in society, that this feeling that these institutions that are in fact bending over backwards, bending too far backwards to, uh, to create racially inclusive environments are actually fostering feelings of discrimination. Well, I mean, that's particularly disturbing because I think that one of the arguments in favor of preferences is that, well, academics isn't really why you go to university in the first place, right? You go there in order to establish connections, build networks, build relationships. Certainly in, in the business school world, there's a, that sentiment because everybody winds up more or less getting A's or B's anyway, right? So the idea is that you're going there for, for the network. If in fact the networks get fragmented the way you're describing, then even that benefit is going to be uh, frustrated, right? Yeah. Although... Let me, you know, in fairness, an important caveat is that I, I, I think we don't know 
if these same effects occur in every educational environment. And I got a large grant to encourage various sort of mismatch research projects about 10 years ago. And I gave a grant to a group that looked at business school and they didn't really find a significant harm from affirmative action in business schools. And it might be for the sort of reason that you're talking about is that folks there aren't really focused on the academics. They're sort of focused on the network building. And that might work fine. And there are also studies that, that suggest that students who say get into Harvard with a preference might have mediocre grades and might flee from the sciences, but nonetheless get other significant benefits from having a Harvard degree. And I think it's an open question whether those benefits are sufficient to offset the harms. So it's complicated, but mismatch is clearly a big problem. And the real frustration here is that our academic institutions have just ignored it. They're afraid to take on something that's that politically sensitive. And there are even a lot of examples of people being canceled recently for talking about the problem. So to me, the strongest argument against our current system of preferences is just the clear inability of universities to honestly deal with these issues. We don't want to defer to them if, if they're not going to be transparent and be honest about what the pros and cons are. But I think your, your argument would apply not just to beneficiaries or recipients of preference in the racial domain, but also presumably this would apply to legacy admits or any kind of person who is admitted but lacks preparation to succeed. Yeah. So there are interesting aspects to that. First of all, long before we, we started looking at mismatch, it was a cliche that a lot of athletes went through college without learning much, right? And yet that fits perfectly into the mismatch story, right? There are some schools, interestingly enough, that create these special academic tracks just for the athletes. And you could see that. I mean, one purpose of that is to make sure they have a high enough GPA to survive the NCAA standards, but that they probably also get better educations because there's, you're sort of dealing with the mismatch problem. You're just saying, okay, you athletes, you're not really able to compete with our normal students. So we're going to put you in special courses and give you special support. On the legacy side, yeah, every evidence we have suggests that mismatch operates across racial lines. So that if you're white and you get in with a large preference, it has the same academic effects. That's number one. Number two, every state that voted to get rid of racial preferences subsequently got rid of legacy preferences because they, they became politically unsustainable. But three, I would guess it's the case that if you're a legacy and you suffer mismatch in college, you're nonetheless going to be okay because dad is going to make you vice president of the corporation. So the long-term effects for legacies are probably not as damaging as they are for, um, for folks with lives of disadvantage. But to the extent that one of the benefits of getting into say a prestigious university is that you're more likely to get employed, right? Cause employers are going to go and, and look for recruits at these more prestigious universities. But does that presume that employers are irrational in some way? I mean, they're certainly aware of the admissions policies. And so presumably they're aware that the signal is diluted in some way, right? So is there, is there evidence of that? And I think, you know, Prop 209 here in California is sort of a great experiment, a sort of a natural experiment. What's the evidence on that? What happened with Prop 209? And, and presumably also if one is seeking out an education for the purpose of having a credible signal of one's competency, then presumably this would maybe increase demand for a degree in a 
you know, jurisdiction where racial preferences and legacy preferences are prohibited? Yeah. Well, there's a lot in those questions. So let me give you a few different answers. Before I get to UC, let me just talk about my research on, on lawyers. I was able to get some pretty good longitudinal data on, on lawyers. And what I found is that law firms, for example, use pretty large preferences when they hire their first year associates. So a lot of big firms in the 1990s, and early 2000s, tried very hard to have racially representative incoming associate classes and used really large references to do that. But the result was that those new lawyers hired with large preferences tended to wash out. They almost never became partner. So that you'd have a lot of firms that, that had first-year associate classes that were 10% black, but 20 years later, they still had partnerships that were 2% black. And that's partly because of the mismatch of skill. It's also because the partners may say, yes, we want to be racially inclusive in our hiring, but when they're picking, you know, which associate they're going to put on, a, on an important project, they're not going to pick someone who has a low GPA. So the students who got the preferences tended to be shunted aside on the important projects. So they didn't get the, the assignments that were going to really hone their skills. So I think there's a significant evidence that, that mismatch kind of plays out in the job market in that sort of context. Now, on the UC side, we, California voters vote to abolish preferences in 96. Starting in 19, 1998, undergraduate admissions are, are more or less race blind. One of the effects that you allude to shows up really clearly in the data, which is that high ability blacks started accepting offers from Berkeley and UCLA and UC San Diego at much higher rates after Prop 2 and I went into effect. They would sometimes turn down an Ivy League offer to go to one of these UC schools. And we didn't interview anyone to, to sort of ask them why, but the, all the indirect evidence suggests that they were essentially trying to get the signal of going to this relatively elite, but race neutral school. Like I'm a black who actually made it entirely on the merits. So I'm really valuable to you, potential employers. So that was pretty striking. The second thing about the two and I experiment is that the university launched a lot of race neutral outreach efforts that did a fabulous job of really create strengthening the pipeline. So they formed partnerships with urban high schools and they did a better job of informing people from disadvantaged backgrounds about what you need to take in high school to apply. They did all sorts of things. And the number of high ability applicants dramatically increased over the 10 years after Prop 2 and I. So I think that was the second really dramatic positive improvement. The third thing is that once we started doing research on UC and showing that there had been a lot of mismatch before Prop 2 and 9 and that those effects were declining, UC, like other academic institutions, shut off the data valve. And, you know, they'd given me a great data set in 2008 from which, like, you know, 15 really good papers came from a whole group of scholars. I went back to them 10 years later and said, I'd like to update this data. And first they said no. And second, they found an in-house economist to do the study I wanted to do and to publish results that have no shared data behind them. So this guy, his name's Zachary Blamer, and he has an academic apartment somewhere. And he's publishing research that purports to contradict the earlier research, but no one can look at his data. So Blamer argues that over the long term, the employment outcomes for uh, mismatched students are not so bad, but you know, 
we need to see the data. So now this is really puzzling, right? Because, you know, we're talking about academics here and academics are folks that we're interested in, in discovery. We're interested in looking at data. We're interested in doing studies. We're interested in debate. And yet this seems to be an area that's kind of off limits. Is this just an example of the cobbler and, and his shoes, right? I mean, why are academics so reluctant to look at this experiment and evaluate the empirical results. I mean, if you're really, really interested in advancing the well-being of African-Americans, right, why would you have zero interest in knowing whether what you're doing is working or not? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredibly disturbing. And kind of like doctors who... They don't really want to know what happens once you leave the hospital, right? I mean, you know, you come into the hospital, yeah. they ask you, are you happy with your medical service? And you're like, yeah, I'm happy. And then they send you on your way and, and there's no longitudinal tracking of whether you, you actually survive after you leave the hospital. <laughs> yeah, but th there is enough of a spirit in the science that, that we, we, we nonetheless do get a lot of longitudinal research on medical effects. And we've, you know, we have real progress. And, and of course, science is generally very rigorous and, and progresses rapidly and dramatically. Social sciences in general are much more ideological and you find these sort of resistances to uncomfortable truths a lot. But I think mismatch is kind of unique in the degree of that resistance. It sort of amplifies that whole phenomenon. Not only do we have administrators who are unwilling to share the data, but we have respected academics who have published attacks on mismatch that are obviously ridiculous. <laughs> But they somehow see it as worth some of their reputational capital to try to go after this. You know, I have a colleague at the law school who published a 190-page attack in a law review on my work. I circulated it to my colleagues, and, and people came and said, well, this doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. I mean, there's, there's nothing substantive in this. But, but this guy was willing to sort of say, well, um, you know, if I put this out, then people who don't read it will say, there must be something wrong with mismatch because why else would somebody do this? It's, it's just a very bizarre phenomenon. And on the same point, several very senior UC administrators have told me or have told my wife, who is an illustrious astrophysicist, that they're all for me getting access to this data, but they can't do anything themselves to make it happen. One of the chancellors of a UC campus told my wife that last month. There are bad things afoot in academia these days. It's just an example maybe of focusing on the wrong KPIs, right? I mean, we see examples of this all the time where companies will focus on this quarter's profits, even though increasing this quarter's profits reduce long-term viability of the company. Or in the world of medicine, for instance, how do you feel when you, when you leave the hospital floating on opiates versus your long-term health consequences? Is this just sort of, these are KPIs that are measurable, that you can use to evaluate institutions in the short run? Or is it is something more than that? Is it more that maybe the objective function of the administrators is not actually the success of the students, but rather something else? Well, yes. I mean, well, so tell me, what, what, what does KPI stand for? Key performance indicator, right? So when you're rewarding people in an organization, you reward them based on some metric. And so right. what are your sales this quarter? You know, what's your cost this yeah. quarter? What's your profit this quarter? And right. so, you know, I mentioned the hospital example because hospitals nowadays, increasingly, they look to customer satisfaction. So I was in, in, a, in a hospital recently and they offered me opiates on numerous occasions because they were highly conscious of the customer feedback survey that they were going to send me. 
But I knew that they weren't going to send me a feedback survey three years later when I might be on the sidewalk with my fentanyl. The focus on the kind of the short term is something that often leads to perverse results. So is it really, if I'm an administrator, I have to demonstrate that I have a racial representation in my incoming class that that conforms to some norm and, and I'm under a great deal of pressure to deliver those results. No, that, that, that's usually important. There's an interesting comparison we can make between law schools and medical schools. So when you graduate from law school, you take the bar exam right after you graduate. And law schools care about their bar passage rate. I think it even factors a little bit into the U.S. news rankings. But they don't have any real ownership over someone who fails the bar exam. They never, you know, sort of say, oh, sorry about that. We're going to refund your student loans. Or <laughs> Whereas medical schools, you know, it's a four-year program and students take their first set of boards after the end of the second year. So if you fail those, you can't graduate from medical school. Therefore, medical schools own the mismatch problem in a way that law schools don't. And you see two things that are different about medical school. One is that they use preferences that are they're substantial, but significantly smaller than those in law school. And two, they have academic support programs in their third year. Everybody who fails the boards at the end of the second year takes these remedial classes with the other students who fail the boards. So again, you're avoiding the mismatch problem by clustering these students together. You know, they may take five years to graduate, but they're going to try to make sure that they pass the boards and graduate. So yeah, that's sort of an institutional way of trying to address the problem that you're talking about, it, of making the institution feel the costs that they're imposing on the students. Right. So if we were if we were to remedy this, I think one of the things that you've advocated is transparency, because no one is forced to go to any particular school. If you're admitted to a good school, top-ranked school, medium-ranked school, like no one's forcing you to go to the top-ranked school. And so presumably if, if you're a student and you had good, solid reason to believe that going to school A is going to lead to failure, career failure, and going to school B is going to more likely lead to success, well, presume that the students would, would choose the one that's more likely to lead to success. So could transparency in some way mitigate the worst consequences of the mismatch? Yeah, I think so. I think if you did two things, first of all, require schools to send with the offer of admission an analysis of how students who had similar credentials performed and what their whatever their outcomes were. Provide all that information with the admissions letter so that when you apply to six colleges, if you get into four, you can compare those outcome reports. Mm -hmm. I think that would be hugely important. And frankly, you know, I would feel much better about students who have bad outcomes if they sort of went in knowing they were taking a gamble, mm -hmm. right? I mean, empower the consumer. Secondly, if, if schools had to provide enough public information so that we could, for example, show how much of UCLA's bar passage problems are arguably due to mismatch, and there was more capacity of journalists to sort of report this in an ongoing way, then we'd have uh, greater accountability. You'd have, it would impose more costs on administrators of ignoring these effects. And ironically, in our, in our world of 2022, we sort of have these faux debates. We have the LA Times reporting that the, uh, the SAT is racially discriminatory. So yes, yes, let's have accountability. Let's get rid of the SAT. You know, it's, it's sort of this, the opposite of transparency and logic operating. 
Do you think that if we did have that transparency, it would, it would make a difference? I mean, I think there's so much prestige associated with the top tier academic institutions. And the evidence that I've seen from, you know, people pursuing prestige and pursuing status, uh, it seems to be independent of whether it actually makes you better off, either financially or, or psychologically. Do we have to rethink the whole idea of status hierarchies in academia? I mean, rather than thinking of, say, Berkeley as better than Cal State, we should think of it more as just different. Like you've got size 12 shoes and size six shoes and no one would ever say I'm, I'm a size six, but you know, I really want those size 12 shoes because they're, they're somehow better than the size six shoes. Do we, do we need to kind of move away from this very strict notion of rank ordering of universities and start thinking about them more as tailored for specific types of students? Are you saying let's have less academic stratification, or are you saying let's not emphasize so much that stratification aspect? I think it, it's a very, it's going to be a very, very hard to convince somebody you just got admitted to an Ivy with a free ride versus here you got admitted to a lesser school and you got to pay for it. What kind of parent is going to tell their kid to choose option B? What kind of kid is going to choose option B. Even if you present them with data and say, hey, you know, if you go to this Ivy League, you're going to wind up dropping out of your major. You might not graduate and so forth. I think people might convince themselves, yeah, well, that's the average person. That's not me. I'm going to be exceptional. I get that. But are you saying that maybe the solution is to not have elite institutions? Or are you saying that we've somehow got to change people's way of evaluating those choices? Well, I think with U.S. News and all of these other ranking systems, that do schools don't differentiate in, in any other way than pursuing this status. And the reason why they do that is because the hi higher the status it is, the, the better the student you can attract. But I think the belief is, the current belief is that you should always go to the school, the best school you get into, where best is defined not as best fit for you, but best according to this numerical ranking that is provided by the U.S. Newses of the world and the Business Weeks of the world. Right, right. Well, okay. So let me say a few different things. One is that I generally am a defender of elitism in the sense that I think there are real benefits to concentrating talent. Mm -hmm. So my wife, as I mentioned, is an astrophysicist. She's at Caltech. And Caltech is an incredible place that I, I love hanging around because you have about 300 faculty that, all are, that are all stars and the sort of interactions you get with that small group of stars across disciplines, I think is generative of all sorts of great things for the world. So I really think places like that should exist. Second, students do tend to disregard reality when they make these choices. The best done survey of law students found that 80% of entering law students predicted they would be in the top half of their class. Mm -hmm. So that illustrates that problem. On the other hand, you do have a lot of students who these days deliberately choose to go to a lower ranked school that has a better financial aid package. Mm -hmm. And I've got some of my best RAs came to UCLA for that reason. Fourth, I think if you provided longitudinal information, it would affect decision-making. And if we made things like U.S. News, if we, if someone could invest in a U.S. News that was based on outcome measures, Mm -hmm. as opposed to input measures. I think people would pay attention. You know, the Wall Street Journal has started doing these periodic stories about different types of higher education. 
and they're using data that I, I think we started gathering in the Obama administration on people's earnings 10 years after college. And so they rank sort of what's the return on investment, <laughs> a very Wall Street Journal type of thing to do. I think that's probably having some effect, don't you? Yeah, I think you mentioned you're talking about historic black colleges and universities and how they seem to be something of, a, of an anomaly in this whole world where the performance of graduates there seems to be considerably higher than it is coming out of Ivy's when you control for academic performance going in. So why is it that we haven't paid closer attention to this? And is this really about the racial composition of schools or is it about the elimination of the mismatch? Why is it that Good these question. schools are so successful in many ways? It's a great empirical question. And in a less political environment, we could really study that carefully. I think that it's, it's the absence of mismatch, but it may be both. No one has sorted out well. I, you know, there, there have been a couple studies. There's a data set called the College Beyond data set developed by the Mellon Foundation back in the 90s. And a couple of folks looked at science mismatch and sort of how that played out. And, and they found that at both flagship state universities and HBCUs, mismatch was, was minimized and science careers were much more likely to mm -hmm. flourish. But I don't think they looked closely at what the marginal effect of the racial composition of the school was. And, you know, that, that, that could matter. So I guess the last question is, why is it that we've got thousands of universities in the United States, and yet there seems to be some kind of consensus or groupthink around preferences? Why don't you see heterogeneity in terms of admissions policies, right? Why don't, why don't some universities say, all right, you know what, we're going to be different. We're going to do our own thing, and then we're going to actually own it and, and be beyond brand, right? You know, I'm, I'm part of the UC system. You're part of the UC system. It seemed like... Prop 209 actually gave the, the UCs the ability to credibly communicate their racial neutrality. They could have actually, you know, made this into part of the brand. And, and from what I've, what I've seen is that, you know, university administrators have done everything they can to distance themselves from this uniqueness and, and to sort of say, no, 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 like, ignore that. <laughs> like, we're, we're, we don't really believe in that and so forth. So why don't we see at least some subset of schools branding themselves as being kind of uh, neutral yeah. in this regard. Yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about UC. First, they denounced Prop 209. Then they insisted that it would have no effect. Then they denied the beneficial effects. And then they just started cheating. So today, even though voters reaffirmed Prop 209 a couple of years ago in the Prop 16 vote, UCs are pretty much back to doing what they were doing in the 90s. But the real answer to your question is that seven or eight years ago, I was invited to give a, a series of lectures at a university. And while I was there, the, the university president invited me to lunch. And was a great guy and very candid. And he, and he said, okay, I, I get this science mismatch thing and I can see it at our school and it tears me up. But I don't know what to do about it because if we stop using preferences, even just for our science classes, or even if we just tell those students what they're likely to encounter here, then all of our applications are gonna dry up from African-American and maybe Hispanic students. And then we're gonna to be totally stigmatized within the university world. I'll get fired and, and white students will avoid the campus because they'll, they'll see this as a racist place. So we're trapped by the broader affirmative action system. One school can't unilaterally do anything without, without losing all of its students. 
That's like a prisoner's dilemma. If you're the one deviant, then you're going to be seriously penalized. And that's sort of what, I mean, at the University of California undergraduate level, that happened to some degree, but it wasn't too bad, but it happened much more heavily at the graduate level. And so the graduate school started cheating much more quickly than the undergraduate schools did. And sort of bring this back to 2022, one of the things that's that will be interesting to see if if the court, if the Supreme Court does substantially restrict preferences, is whether that works better than, say, Prop 209, because it will be a national ruling. In other words, it would be a moment when schools could actually decide to play the game by the rules and look at the effects and not be penalized in competition with other schools. So if the Supreme Court overturns affirmative action, we'll either see a race to the top or we'll see a race to the bottom. So if racial inequality is still with us and it's, it's persistent and you've identified interventions that seem to be counterproductive, like preferences in higher education admissions, and you've identified interventions that, that are actually quite productive in terms of reducing housing segregation and, and so forth. Do you think that the attention that we give to the kind of counterproductive interventions diverts attention and resources away from the interventions that, that could be? productive? Do we emphasize the, the counterproductive ones because they're, they're cheaper and they're relatively easy to implement and the ones that work are kind of more difficult, more intractable and more expensive? Are we looking for easy solutions and the fact that easy solutions don't work is irrelevant because it gives us a sense of progress? I mean, is that, is that sort of what's, what's happening here? Well, I think sort of. I don't think it's a matter of economics. The sort of pro-integration strategies that I align are really very cost-effective. You know, I, I think we could, if we spent $25 billion over 15 years, which would be a pretty trivial amount, even of our, even of HUD's budget, we could really transform and get rid of serious segregation. I think the problem is, it, I think you're right that it's, it's a path of least resistance, but it's more a political path of least resistance and an intellectual path of least resistance. There are big costs to sort of going against uh, our conventional notions about what's driving racial inequality. Nobody wants to say blacks will benefit by being in the neighborhoods with more whites. They want to say universities need to be more racially inclusive to improve the education of whites. But there are truths in both of those statements and try to get to the bottom of what the truth is and trying to focus on that and how you promote that. That's intellectual hard work. And these days, politically dangerous work. Then on the segregation side, you also have, what are the political alliances? Black congressmen representing Chicago or, or Cleveland or New York don't have a strong incentive in fostering racial integration. That's sort of cutting their power base. Black community leaders don't have a strong incentive in fostering integration. They have a strong incentive to get more resources put into the existing black community. So where's the political constituency? for fostering housing integration. We like to talk about white suburbanites as being the key political obstacle, but I don't think that's true. I, I think I think African-American community and political leaders are probably the key obstacle. And in the universities, you have this, this prisoner still under that we talked about. So I think it's sort of political and group interaction problems. Well, certainly it deserves interdisciplinary examination. I think your books both all have you know, a highly interdisciplinary element where you mix law, economics, political science, 
sociology, psychology. There's quite a bit of everything in here. Very well researched. Moving towards integration, the past and future of fair housing, and mismatch. How fair innovation hurts students. It's intended to help and why universities would admit it. Thank you so much, Rick, for joining me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>